Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science to find out they want to alleviate malnutrition and they were terrified about starting their faculty position, or that they need some time to focus on graduating and lining up the next big adventure. Maybe that's just me, your host, Ben Rush. So up top, you heard right. Myself, Jev, and Julia, who are all working on this podcast, need some time to write our dissertations, graduate, and or find jobs. We are taking March and April off. We are debating whether we will come back starting in May. We'll keep you posted. Until our return, hopefully you can dig through our catalog of episodes or raise a glass to encourage us to keep writing all the manuscripts. We do have something that will make life a bit nicer in the meantime. You could win a copy of Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart, by finding us on Twitter and retweeting one of the book contest tweets and follow us. We are at Deeper Than Data. You have until March 1st to do so. Lastly, our episode today. I've waited a long time to have our guest on because I wanted to save him for a special time. We officially released our first episode of the podcast over a year ago. Our first birthday was February 21st. To celebrate, I asked my major professor, the person who I've been working with for the past few years, to come on the podcast. We go into his journey, what he learned, and then dive deep into how he and I worked together and grew together throughout the years. I wanted to showcase the more heartfelt side of the conversation, and to make sure the episode isn't too lengthy, we're going to pass on the game for this episode. With all that said, let's get to the reflective conversation with my professor, boss, and mentor, Adam Kugnia. Adam, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Ben. I am quite excited to have you here. As listeners have heard, you are my major professor. I've shared like good stories, good things about you, Adam. Mm. But now they get to know you a little bit more in depth for our one-year anniversary episode. I thought about this episode maybe like three months into like the creation of this podcast. So I've waited. I've been a oh, good boy well. and waited to have you on here. Can we just start with our basic information like we ask with everybody else? Can you say your name and pronouns you use? Yes, my name is Adam Kuknia, and my pronouns are he and him. Wonderful. And if people were going to bump into you on the street today, what might you look like? Well, um, I am, I have a shaved head. That's probably because I'm fairly bald uh, up top. I have a scruffy beard, I would say. Um, red hue, maybe. I would say that I'd like to say I'm athletic build, but I don't think I really am anymore. But I, I, I'd say I'm lean. I'm about 5'10". I would agree with the lean build. I can, on, in our lab, when we're training people about like imaging, I can always recognize your images from those from those nice shoulders. So. Oh, well, that's good. To hear. That's good to hear. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Any identities you'd like to highlight about yourself? So I am um, I'm married. 
I've been married for a few years now uh, to Jessica uh, Kuknia. She's fantastic. I have, or we have, a young toddler son who is 16 months old, I think almost today, or in a couple days. He's a pretty, pretty fun guy. I am the youngest of three. And how are you affiliated with UW-Madison? I'm an assistant professor here in the Department of Nutritional Sciences. Uh, I've been in this role about five years now, I believe, since since 2017. Uh, last year, I also became the director of the didactic program in dietetics. I always like to go back uh, into people's childhood with the favorite question, who was your first crush? So I would say my very first crush, what, her name was Sarah, and this was in kindergarten. Our families would go on camping trips together, and she was in my, she was in my class, and it goes way back then. And shortly after that, I even had another crush, and her name was Becky, and that was right around the same time frame, so Sarah and Becky. Um, yeah. <laughs> and this was in Kenosha, correct? Yeah, it was actually Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, which is right nearby Kenosha. Could you paint us a little picture of what it was like growing up at Twin Lakes, maybe with like family, what you did? Yeah, I had a really I had a really nice childhood. So I'll paint you a picture. So I grew up uh, in a log cabin on roughly, I think, about four acres. And this log cabin was built entirely by my dad and his friends when they were younger, which I think is pretty cool. And we lived right down the street from a lot of my family. So my mom's side, her two or her three siblings live down the street from us riding bike distance. So I, I became very close with my cousins. I had a lot of cousins very close, went to school together, which was fantastic. And yeah, living on that that land within the log cabin kind of I, I was positioned right in between milwaukee and chicago so i lived in the country close to cities and you know always you know, playing outside sports that kind of thing so that yeah it was a really nice upbringing i'm curious too because like you're you're working now in nutrition realm clinical realm i'm imagining like as a kid probably not thinking about healthy options per se. If I was a kid, and I was, I would just think about like candy and treats and stuff like that. Did you th start getting connected to like nutrition or science in middle school area time? No, I really did not get connected to science, I think until much later, much later than some. When I was in middle school, I think I was like you, it was candy. I was a candy junkie. I, I remember a store down the street from me, and I used to go and just get giant bags of candy on the regular. Um, but I was always, always, my childhood was dominated by sports, and that was actually my segue. But no, I, I was not, it was not early. Nutrition wasn't on my mind. I was just chugging candy on the regular. And high school Adam, I think, started getting into wrestling then. But who also was high school Adam besides wrestling? Hmm. 
Yeah, high school Adam, he was pretty awkward, I think pretty obnoxious, to be honest with you, and that I was obnoxious, you know, starting in middle school, going into high school. And I think that was dampened a little bit because I became fairly insecure because of how small I was. I was very, very small child. My older brother was, you know, we, we call each other, you know, runts of the family. He was very small. I mean, so freshman Adam, I was 92 pounds soaking wet going into freshman year. I was insecure, you know, about my size. And, and so, so I didn't try to be the funny guy anymore. I just try to, for the most part, blend in, I think in eighth grade and in freshman year in high school and, and even so into sophomore year too, but always in three sports every year. And so again, sports kind of dominated my upbringing. And so the sports that I entered into soccer, wrestling and golf, and I got into soccer. I, I was into soccer as a, as a kid and my mom was actually my soccer coach and I loved it, but I joined it in high school because my wrestling coach told me I had to, to get into shape for wrestling. And so, yeah, you can imagine wrestling was my kind of my main sport and, and the main focus, but the sport I liked the most was definitely golf. But yeah, high school Adam was started off pretty, pretty shy, insecure. And I came into my own a little bit junior and senior year. I think like a lot of people do. Probably became obnoxious again and, and, and thought I was just really, really funny. And, and I'm sure I wasn't, but no, just having, just having that confidence, right. That, um, I was still very small though. I, I, I was always small. I mean, I still am. Right. Um, and I, I think it was because I became, again, through sports, I, I was a multiple sport team captain, and I had my friends on, on the team with me. And, and just having the confidence through athletics, you know, you know, allowed me to come into my own. And yeah, but still obnoxious. And I was ultra, ultra competitive. And so I think you might know this, but when high schools hand out those wills, you know, to, to seniors, the most likely to succeed, the most likely to this, that, and the other, I got most competitive. And so I was extreme to a fault. I was extremely competitive. Yeah. I think that's tampered down a bit. Um, when we've played mini golf together, I didn't feel like my life was going to be threatened. <laughs> if I won, good, be good because it, it was in, it was in there. It was in my head. <laughs> it was in jeopardy. Yeah. You just didn't. Yeah. yeah you're tempering. You just didn't express it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's all intrinsic now. You know, it's funny. Like, too, you were mentioning you still feel small. I think you're the tallest person in lab. Like in hindsight, we just have a very small lab. Yeah. The bar's low. Yeah. The bar's really low. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm barely 5'10". And yeah, you and you, Jevin and Katie just don't really. When you were starting to go to undergrad, how did you decide to get into a particular major? Again, following the theme, it, it was driven by athletics and performance in, in that. So I went to the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse and one of the main reasons why I chose to go there is because they had a really solid wrestling program. Honestly, it really, it wasn't about academics. And, and again, I, I keep saying that I, I came into science late. Um, 
And so it was about academics at first. And, you know, I was then very intrigued with sports performance and exercise, right? And so my major was exercise science, and I had a minor in strength and conditioning. And I think for a long time, I was personal training. And then did you also started getting more into dietetics? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely later in undergrad. So I think it was, well, so disclaimer, I went to undergrad for five years because, again, I redshirted my freshman year in college so that I can compete my last four years. And that seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, Hindsight, I probably would not have done that. But so it wasn't until I think my fourth year that I realized that I'm very interested in nutrition and that was brought about because through wrestling and some of the, these poor practices that I did to um, maintain my weight or, or reduce my weight for a particular weight class, I realized that I had this, you know, this deep connection with food, nutrition and performance. And so, yeah, about my fourth year, I decided then to take some prerequisites at a neighboring university, which was Viterbo food science and nutrition because at the time lacrosse did not have a nutrition program i think now they have a minor um, so i took some prerequisites at Viterbo university and i yeah and that was it and then i decided um you know by my fifth year that i was going to go to graduate school for human and clinical nutrition and did you jump right from undergrad to a graduate program I did. I did. I went to the University of Wisconsin Stout. They had a really nice graduate program uh, in human and clinical nutrition. And while I was there, I also fulfilled all the requirements necessary to obtain a dietetic internship, which then allowed me to sit for the RD exam. You have an interesting path, I think, unlike a lot of the other guests we've had on here, that you had some time in between to work as a clinician, which likely shaped your views going forward for research. And you were probably 23, 24 going into the clinic at this point. Yeah, so I so I did the internship, the clinical internship at the University of Minnesota Health. Shortly after that ended, I moved down to Florida and got into research. And I worked there for a year actually before going into back into clinical. Yeah. Do you feel like you were also becoming even more of yourself? Because I'm thinking of myself like 23, 24 is probably when I started realizing, you know, I definitely don't know everything. There's still stuff I need to fi- figure out about myself, but also working and sometimes in a role of like teaching others too. Yeah, it was an interesting time too, because, and you know, it kind of goes back, you know, I wanted, I was really seeking out at that time, higher education, because I was always, I wanted more responsibility and I wanted, um, I just wanted to better myself. And so really around that time is when I started striving for information, however I could get it. And that's what propelled me after my master's program, because really that was the end for me initially was, it was going to be the master's program. And I was at that point in time through that program, I started getting interested in, in research. Um, but once I was down at the research institute, I just had this um, 
this want, this need for additional understanding, additional training. But it, it, would, it was interesting, right? Now thinking back on it, I haven't thought about this in quite some time. When I actually moved away and moved down to Florida is really also when I started learning things about myself, some that I liked, some that I didn't like, right? I'm living on my own. I'm living, I didn't know a soul when I moved down there and I'm taking my first, what I thought was my first real position. So I learned a lot about myself um, and what I, what I thought I could do, what I wanted to do. Your, your path is interesting because you did have a little bit of time working in the clinic before going into a PhD program. But you also had, um, it seems like, an inclination towards research maybe the entire time. Do you feel like you were starting to create different research questions like in your head as you were working in the clinic? My first experience in the clinic was when I was in my master's program. And while I was, I was a graduate assistant, but I also obtained a part-time job at a mail at a small mail clinic uh, there in town and I I worked in the nutrition department which meant it was a small hospital which meant I also did food service and clinical care but I wasn't registered I wasn't a dietitian at that point so I couldn't do too much right um, so I was really just assisting and yeah I think when I was doing patient care and when we did get the chance to have somebody who had such a compromised GI tract or they couldn't eat for whatever reason, and we started working on those tube feeding regimens, that's when I really started asking questions. And that's when I wanted more information, right? And so I worked, yeah, I worked quite a bit. I sought out more hours um, to get that additional experience to work with that dietitian that was that was on staff. And that's really when I started shaping up. Like, hey, this is pretty interesting stuff. And for listeners too, who might be unfamiliar with the role of a clinical dietitian, could you just maybe give us a typical day that you may have had? Sure. And that can, that varies, right? Depending on if you're at a smaller hospital or if you're a larger, you know, university medical center, you come in in the morning to the hospital, you, you have your patient list, right? So you, you basically have a list of patients that you are consulted to see by a physician. So a physician will consult you for whatever reason it may be. Maybe it's some sort of nutrition education. Maybe it's some sort of um, initiating nutrition support. You know, so there's various things that we would get consulted for to see patients. But outside of that, if a patient was in the hospital for a certain amount of time, based on our rules and guidelines, we would have to assess them or at least assess their risk for malnutrition. If they were not nutritionally compromised or not at risk, that was fine. We did not have to follow up on them too often. But if they were then, if we deem them to be at risk, then we do a nutrition assessment. We deem them to be malnourished to some degree. When you're thinking of these hypotheses of like how nutrition might work in a clinical setting, did you start leaning towards one subject in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So my questions and my frustration within the assessment of malnutrition is what drove my questions and then what also drove me to move on to get my PhD. And what I mean by that is malnutrition assessment is done by um, 
obtaining a, a whole slew of parameters. But one of the primary factors that we use to diagnose malnutrition is to do what's called a nutrition-focused physical exam, where we go to the patient's bedside and we palpate various parts of the body, and then we try to say something historically about their, their muscle and fat stores. And based on those measures, we can say, is somebody malnourished, you know, severely, you know, the degree of malnutrition. And I just thought that I never had a good sense of, you know, when I was, when I was palpating or looking at somebody, especially if they were overweight or obese, you know, what, how do I know what their tissue stores look like? How do I know if that's fat? How do I know if that's muscle? And, or, you know, so I, I was very frustrated. I didn't think that I was doing a very good job. And that's what caused me to pursue um, the advanced degree and looking more at muscle with objective imaging um, biomarkers than just kind of physical inspection and palpation. And so I think it was my frustration. The day-to-day -day frustration that I had diagnosing malnutrition um, forced me, it compelled me to, to continue to ask questions of how, how can I improve this and how can I improve this process to then improve patient outcomes, right? Yeah, and people might be hearing like, well, muscle just helps us kind of get around and move. It's more than that, as our lab definitely goes into. Why why is muscle so important in like a clinical setting? Yeah, I think you're right. So most people, right, just they acknowledge that muscle is important for getting, you know, from A to B, right, for locomotion, it's important for jumping, right? It's, it's important for doing physical type of activities and, and moving around throughout the day. But what people, what a lot of people don't appreciate is the importance, the, the incredibly important role that muscle plays at uh, mounting an immune response and protect, trying to protect our vital organs during illness, right? And so, um, you know, as people are sick and as they're, they get, you know, ill or they go through some kind of traumatic injury, the body kicks into gear and actually the muscle lends amino acids. It's kind of this reservoir of amino acids that is necessary to actually drive this metabolic response. It actually switches to breaking down muscle to provide the necessary substrates to fuel the body during that part, particular time. We lose muscle mass at an extreme rate when we're sick and when we're ill. Uh, that's why I got into it. And you can just see, you know, for instance, Ben, I mean, you know, people can lose up to, you know, 15% of their weight within a week of being in the hospital, right? And most of that, you know, 75% of that is muscle weight. And so it, it's a staggering amount of loss. And so I just felt like, well, if muscle is this important to mounting this immune response and for getting people out of the hospital, then we have to be able to measure it accurately and we have to be able to do that repeatedly throughout time, throughout a hospital stay. And using those imaging techniques to actually quantify muscle mounts and loss besides just using that palpitation. So we can actually know what we're trying to treat. Correct, correct. And, and I don't want to give the you know, the wrong idea that, you know, the nutrition focused physical exam is, it's useful, right? And, and it's the best thing that we have at this point in time as nutrition professionals, as, and as a registered dietitian nutritionist. But I just think that, you know, as the technology is getting better, right, as we're getting more insight into muscle biology and how it's, um, how it changes, throughout time and throughout disease, I just think we can do better. So I also know that you were working, um, 
with Nestle at the same time as you're doing graduate school. How was that trying to balance graduate school and also working? Yeah, that was challenging. That was a tough time for me. And, but it was an informative time. It was necessary. So, yeah. So when I was first entered back, back into a graduate program, yeah, I was getting the PhD in human nutrition. I was also part-time clinical dietitian working out of the surgical and medical ICU and cardiothoracic ICU at University of Minnesota. And then I also took on a new role of being a research and development intern at Nestle Health Science, which at that point in time was based out of uh, Minneapolis or, or Minnetonka, Minnesota, which was right there. And the reason why I did that is I felt like I had to solidify my interest in research. I had to experience what it would have been like to, or what it would be like to potentially work in industry and doing research for Nestle rather than starting up my own lab, right? And so that's why I did that. I, I wanted to see what it was going to be like. I, I actually anticipated really enjoying it, and I did, but I anticipated really enjoying it and likely working in industry for Nestle or for Abbott, working on their medical foods, so working on their tube feeding products, trying to make them more natural, Although I did like it, I had great coworkers. I worked with fantastic senior scientists at Nestle Health Science working on those product lines. It just wasn't quite for me. And so I thought that that little deviation and, and that experience was necessary for me to actually solidify that, yes, you know what, this research path going into higher education, starting up my own lab, this is what I'm going to be this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'm passionate about. And this is what I want to do long term. And so, yeah, it was, it was a tough time because it was very busy. It was very challenging, but also very necessary and really helped me, um, you know, definitively determine that this is what I should be doing. Yeah. And I really appreciate that too. Um, as I've done random things in my life, like being an internet zoo and at some point in my life, I felt like, well, maybe that's an option. And by doing something, wholeheartedly for amount of time you can really rule that out and it's it's very useful when trying to figure out exactly what you want to do i guess also like at least in my my path and we've probably talked about this a, a few different times there might be just some people who go on to do lots of different things and they don't do one thing in particular i might just be that person but at least it is trying to figure out like what experiences actually do spark some joy and passion. What am I actually interested in getting into? And all those experiences they have, they're beneficial, right? Even if you just determine that you didn't, didn't like said experience, that's beneficial. That's good to know that, you know what, that wasn't for me. Right. So I think for you who you have a very interesting path, you had a also, you know, great experiences all of those, whether you like them or dislike them, what, you know, some of them unique, maybe some of them not so unique, you learn something and you grew from them. Yeah. And I, I have definitely appreciated like your flexibility, knowing that, that people becoming more well-rounded, not only is it good for them, but it's usually going to have returns with the lab or, you know, even in businesses beyond like academia, just having everyone's different perspectives and experiences is going to bring value to the team. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. 
you know, I think we've had this conversation many times that, you know, although I am, you know, I'm a junior scientist here on campus and I'm still trying to mold and shape my mentoring style. Regardless, I, I still knew that I wanted students who were passionate about research and science, but that's not everything. I also wanted them to be productive outside of these walls. I wanted them to be good people outside of these walls. And so having those other experiences, um, you know, either allows you to realize that, hey, this stuff that we're doing in lab is great, or, you know, it's not quite for me. And so I'm just going to take a little different path. Either way, that could also then make you happier that you found that out, make you, you know, more productive in the lab while you're here. And did you kind of get to this stance in philosophy or at least like mentoring style while you're in graduate school? I don't think I actually realized it until after. And I was reflecting back on my own path. Right. And I had an advisor who was supportive of me doing some of these other things as well, where I think if I think many advisors and many PIs would would say, well, that's just too much. You aren't going to be able to dedicate the amount of time that I need for you to you know, work on my on my research and in your project. And so I think it, it was I was very fortunate to have Dr. Earthman who allowed me that flexibility and that freedom. But she understood that I was going to work off hours to get my primary work done in the lab. And she was going to be supportive of that. And so, yeah, I think it was, I did not realize that until I was thinking back on my path through um, those professional experiences, graduate school, that I also want to allow you and, and Javin and Katie the flexibility to try out and have those experiences as well, because they were beneficial for me. Yeah, I bet that was, I mean, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but a bit of a kind of just launch into that like mentoring style that you had because you went from graduate school and unlike the typical path for like an academic you did not have a postdoc to do additional research maybe glean a little bit more from different styles of working you and I you know I think that's pretty cool you're able to jump right into being an assistant professor and then had to start learning with graduate students coming on almost immediately how to be a mentor. Do you think there are any particular things you struggled with or were nervous about when taking on graduate students in the beginning? I was nervous about everything then, yeah. So I did, yeah, like you said, I did not come from the research pedigree that some of these fantastic researchers here on campus come from, and I'm surrounded by them, right, in the Department of Nutritional Sciences. I didn't have that, but what I had was that clinical knowledge and that clinical understanding, and, and that that filled a need within the department. So I feel very fortunate that they looked at my clinical experience, you know, eight, nine years working um, with various patient populations. They took that in lieu of a, of a postdoc, which is not typical. But I think that also, you know, coming back to that, that insecurity when, when I'm coming into this position, um, I felt very insecure because I didn't have that type of background. I didn't have the postdoc. I didn't have that additional training. Um, and I think I was selling my, myself short on the training that I did have. But as I was coming into that first year and, and throughout that first year, the thought of taking on students, PhD students, gave me great angst and um, made me very nervous because I wanted to make sure 
honestly, it goes back to you with me being so fresh out of graduate school. I wanted to make sure that I was doing right by the students so that they would be marketable and they're going to get the job that they worked for after their PhD. And I was questioning whether I was that individual who could take them to that level, take you to that level. And, and I still question that, right? And throughout, I, I want to make sure that you are all set up and you are doing better than I am when you're done. And so that's, that's, that's the goal. Obviously, I want to drive my research and I want to produce great research. But I also, the students that join the lab, I want to make sure that they leave um, and do better things than I. And I, I feel like I can definitely see that um, just like in my... Because you just, you know, you talk with other graduate students and just in my experience alone, I've had different mentors in academia. Um, and I think one thing that I've always appreciated is just your, I think, honesty about your own limitations and the things that we can do and also just openly expressing that. It's like, yes, be a good researcher, but also be a good person. Um, and I think when, you know, recently we were onboarding new undergraduates, uh, you expressed that too, which I would imagine would make them feel like they're going to belong a bit more. Like it's not about power. It's not about your ego to do research. It's building something that's bigger than all of us. And then ideally our research has impact on the world too. I want to train good people. I want people who are excited, who are nice, who are ambitious, who have drive in the lab. I don't want any egos, right? Uh, that That's important to me. That's important for me to surround myself. You know, I'm with you and all the other individuals in the lab quite frequently, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, I see you sometimes, you know, more than my family in certain weeks. And so I want to surround myself with the type of individuals that, you know, are going to make me better as well. I want to try to make you better. I want to surround myself with people that um, are just great overall good people in science and outside of science. So, yeah, that's, that's really just the gist. And, you know, obviously I need to, I need to also be productive. Obviously. And, and that also, as I'm sure it does, a lot of assistant professors keeps you up at night. But I got lucky. I got lucky because not only I surrounded myself with the individuals that I thought had all those qualities that are important, but are also great minds and really, really tremendous at doing research, coming up with your own ideas, asking tough questions and propelling my research platform. So I feel very fortunate within this these first handful of years, these students that I've been able to, you know, get enter the lab, uh, including yourself. But taking on students is initially was stressful. So you started your first year. You got one graduate student who was Jevin, um, who listeners have even heard from because he's been interviewed on here and helps with the podcast. And then your second year, maybe you were thinking about taking on one, but then wound up taking two, which was probably also a little bit nerve wracking because you have to think about your startup money, what grants you have. How was that decision to take on maybe more people than you were initially thinking? It wasn't just my own. So yeah, so Jevin came initially and I just needed help to get the lab off the ground. And you talk about, I mean, if Jevin was sitting here, he, I mean, those first, that first year of his was probably pretty hectic. 
because we were establishing a lab. We were ordering supplies. We were trying to decide the, the studies we we're going to get involved in, um, our hypotheses, um, IRB, you know, all that, all that stuff. And that was probably a traumatic time for him. And I know it was stressful for me, but um, yeah, so he came first. And then that second year, you know, we, we were really, Jevin and I were really starting to engage in a lot of different collaborations, you know, just starting, you know, not, not like it is now we have, we have a ton, but we're just starting. And we had a little bit too much that we could not handle at all. Right. And so I knew that, okay, well, I'll take one more student. That was it. It was going to be one more student. And I'm also, also pretty frugal, right. With my, with my funds. Um, but I was fortunate enough in that first year to obtain a pilot pilot award from ICTER, which gave me a little bit more cushion or, or made me feel uh, like I could hire on an additional student. So you rotated through the lab and Katie rotated through the lab. Now, I'm not going to say who I was going to take, but you were both fantastic. Um, your experiences were a little bit outside of mine, which I thought was actually beneficial because you could then, you know, we could support each other. The things that I, you know, things that I'm not familiar with, you could really, you could supplement my knowledge. So I thought it was going to be great. But then Katie also, her interests were very closely related to mine. Right. And so I thought, well, she'd be great as well. Um, so I decided who I was going to take. And at that point in time, Rick and Dave came in and we had a chat. And they are senior faculty with the department. Yeah. So Dave is the department chair and Rick is senior faculty who I also, you know, I, these two individuals I respect greatly. And they told me that they think that I should take both. Um, they wanted, they, they thought you two were great individuals. They thought that you two could really help me propel my research, but they also knew that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I know that I was Katie's first choice. I believe that I was your first choice as well. Is that true? Through your rotations. And so they really wanted to keep, keep you both here and they, they sweeten the pot a little bit with some additional TA ships and, and things that would kind of offset some of the costs and some of the angst that I have had with taking on two students. Um, but the other question was, well, do I have the projects for two? And I, I did, they were still, you know, coming into fruition a little bit, but I, I knew that I was going to at least sometime fairly soon have enough research for, for two additional students. And, and that actually, that point in time, Ben, I was, I was stressed. I was very anxious. Now, now I have three PhD students. And I thought that's what people did at the time. I thought people, you just keep taking on students and you keep taking on trainees, right? PhD students. And, and it wasn't until I'd say about a year ago when I was going through, you know, throughout, through one of my other grants, I was going through some meetings, finding out that well, a lot of people don't do that. You, you structure your lab however you feel is going to be appropriate for you. But I just, I was naive and I thought that's what people did. Hindsight, Ben, I might not have taken three PhD students. I know I would not have taken three PhD students in the first two years. I might have backed off on that, maybe hired a tech, maybe, you know, a scientist for some continuity. But 
it was also a, it was also great because you know like i said before you three are great students you guys really helped me out and i think we work well together and so it turned out to be you know a, a happy ending a good blessing and very fortunate about that but yeah that was not going to happen i i got i had a talking to from dave and dave and rick and they said why don't you do this and i said okay you know it it's funny in that i'm in you know, my fourth year, but really working in your lab just a like full full time, just over three years. So it seems much longer, probably also because of the pandemic. How do you think you've changed since in those three years? And then how do you think I've changed in those three years? Well, you were starting as a graduate student. I was essentially starting as an assistant professor. I think we both really found our footing, right? Um, for me, over the last few years, I've gained you know, a little bit of confidence. Uh, I'm starting to understand my role and, and just navigating my space within this, this department. So I feel like I'm really getting my footing that way and also developing and it's still changing it's fluid my my mentoring style i don't think i have a set mentor uh mentoring style right now but that's come that's really starting to come into shape right and for you i think similarly you know as all graduate students although you seem you seem pretty comfortable you seem more comfortable than most graduate students when you when you came in I feel like you navigate this department, this university very well because of some of those other experiences that you've had because of your potential future endeavors. Um, I think, you know, the ins and outs and uh, of this university maybe better than anybody. Um, and then I also think that through your opportunity, opportunities to mentor undergraduates that we've accepted into this lab, I think you've, you've grown as a scientist, right? I mean, you have probably better, you probably have a better control of your own mentorship style than I do at this point. Maybe, maybe not, but you and I talk about that, right? And I think I've learned some things from you and, and in that respect, and maybe you have of me too. But uh, yeah, you've just really got your footing. And I feel like even though it's up in the air a little bit, what you're going to do with your future, I, I think you're very certain on the area that you want to go into. And I think you're very certain that you're going to land on your feet. So. Yeah, I've been thinking about like, okay, the the next steps or in 10 or 15 years, I still don't have any, like, been in 10 years? I don't know. And we <laughs> both you and I have joked about that. And like, you can kind of see the path for Jevin. You can kind of see the path for Katie. I'm a bit of the wild card. But, I mean, that's also exciting at the same time, too. What are some things do you think you've learned from me? And then I can also brainstorm for stuff that I've learned from you as well. And I'll also I'll open it up. Um, are there things that you also wanted, you know, because we are kind of wrapping up like our time of working together, I think in this, in this specific role, you know, we'll be in touch probably forever. Um, but are there things that you also wanted to know from my perspective? Hmm. So starting with the first question, I gave you a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, there's, there's a lot to unpack there and it's not easy to unpack some of that stuff. So what have I learned from you? Um, 
I mean, I think just, you know, it's hard to say just one thing that I've learned from you and, and some of the other graduate students, but I think, you know, you've really helped sharpen my skills as a mentor. I mean, we've had many a conversations, and I think this is unique to your and my relationship. So we've chatted about mentorship style, and we've chatted about, you know, what is the best way and, and how should we be treating some of these younger students. And, and so I think you've just really vaguely sharpened my skills in all areas, right? So you, um, you're a really good scientist and you're, you're a great statistician, right? And that's something that, you know, I, I could definitely say that I was lacking in that area, you know, biostatistics. And so if I, if I had to say something specific, you've definitely sharpened my skills in kind of that area of science in, in uh, data analysis, which is great, but just overall, vaguely, um, big picture stuff. I think you've just sharpened my skills as a, uh, as a PI, um, as a mentor. Um, and without getting into specifics, I mean, a student like you and Katie and Jevin, you have a way of challenging PIs, I think, because you are so high level. And, um, I've definitely been challenged, um, to make sure that I can provide you with the necessary tools to kind of move on. It's also interesting, like from my perspective, so seeing you, one thing that I would say that you have changed in the past three years is I think being a bit more open with people um, and maybe, you know, that's part of having a kid. I think in the beginning, if I was meeting you, if you're going to share something about yourself, like you're just meeting undergrads or maybe faculty members, I would guess you probably wouldn't have mentioned anything about your family. But I think that has changed in the past couple of years, which is great. Because then I, from my perspective, again, it's like people can see you beyond just your research too. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. As you know, I, I don't tend to lead on too much and give up too information that easily about myself personally. And I think for a long time, I tried to, you know, keep those two things separate, right? My personal life and my work life. But I think over the years, you know, you, you have to try to integrate the two to be as, um, successful in both simultaneously as you can. Um, and also having a child, like you mentioned, uh, makes you feel it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to be struggling at that point in time. And, and so I shared a lot of that with you as my journey throughout, you know, fatherhood, which has been, you know, yeah, that, that's been, that's been interesting and challenging. So I, I think just some of the experiences that I've had um, with my family my growing family and, and just getting to know you all. It, it's okay to, to be vulnerable. It's okay to integrate these two areas of my life because I think at the end of the day, if I, if I can do that, if I can do that properly, um, that's only going to make me a better professor, a, you know, advisor, but also hopefully a better uh, husband and father. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking of the, so I would agree, you know, I came into the lab, I think, with a skill set that's great for statistics. But I think a little bit of my hidden agenda for the lab, especially as I've grown in a role as a communicator and learn 
the value of being vulnerable is also maybe trying to instill some of that <laughs> into our lab too. Um, you know, maybe not being very explicit about it, but trying like, I think especially with the communication, trying to get things like a bit more efficient at some points to like lock down, you know, who's specifically doing what at what time points with deadlines. I don't know if you felt like that has changed or not, like since being in lab or, you know, that's, that's probably also coming from a lot of different people in lab as well. No, I actually, you know what? Going back to this efficiency thing, that is spot on now that I'm kind of reflecting. These questions are tough right off the bat, right? As I'm reflecting on this, you are the person, you know, and I hate to admit it more so than me to say, can we just take a second here? Can we see where, where are we at and then where do I need to get by said time, right? I think you're very good at um, directing some of that, which again, I think is, um, it's how you're going to mentor, right? Keep people on task, keep people on track. But you've also, while doing that, you you've definitely uh, keep it light with the lab, right? You, um, you have shown your vulnerable side. I think on a number of occasions and just how you are in general. Um, and that makes everyone else feel comfortable to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know I've, I can think of a few times that I've um, challenged you and it's still interesting because like the, you know, power dynamic, um, not that, not saying you enforce it, but just it's naturally ingrained. Um, even yesterday in our conversation, when we were talking about, uh, manuscript and you had like comments in the manuscript and we're starting to go through them and i was like you know what like it might be better use of our time to not go through everything i i was nervous to mention that but i was like this might also be a good learning opportunity for everybody it's it's funny though because i used to do that with my advisor back in the day she would you know want to perseverate on something and i would you know, sometimes just like you did, you know what? I, I'm good. I think maybe if I just went and did this, I, we don't need to talk about it anymore. And I think sometimes I'd like to be a little bit overly verbose and I want to chat it out. But um, so that's fair. I'm good with that. That's fine. If you want to be more, if it makes you more productive, I'm a happy, happy uh, person. So yeah, that that's funny. I, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> well, I think it's like, it's good to bring up because you know, from my perspective, it is kind of scary on your side. It might just be like, oh, that's, you know, good little, little tiny tidbit and not think twice about it. This is with the caveat of you don't have an ego that when challenged, you're going to push hard back on because you're trying to save your ego. Well, when you have good points, you have good points, Ben. It's not like you've ever challenged me to a point to where I felt like I ever had to pull my hierarchy card, right? I, I didn't have to pull that power dynamic card, right? Because you, I mean, you make sense. If When you challenge me, it's typically well thought out. And that's great, right? And it's not out of anything, but, you know, it's coming from a good place. And so I'm fine with that. And, and also, I mean, I don't like, I don't want to be that person. You know, I, you're right. I, I try not to have an ego in this lab. I don't want to be around somebody like that. And I'm sure you all don't want to be around somebody like that. As long as you get your work done and you present your thoughts logically and they make sense, that's fair. That sounds good. 
And if you disagree with me, which you have on a number of occasions, right, throughout the years, you tell me why you think it's that way, cool. <laughs> if it makes sense and it seems reasonable, I can get on board with that. Yeah. Well, now switching to the future a little bit. Whoa, wait, whoa, wait. whoa. Yeah. So the future, yeah, the future is coming very quick for you. How did you enjoy your time in the lab? Ah, good question. Um, yeah, kind of like I was saying before, like it, it feels like a lot longer than in the end, which would be three and a half years, maybe slightly a little bit more than that. But I think it has been a wonderful foundational base for me to explore, I think, different career trajectories, interests, and also figuring out who I was. You know, in our first, I think one way that I've changed is probably a bit more unapologetically bringing my type of humor to everything. I I remember in the beginning, I was probably still making like slight jokes maybe here and there, but maybe the safe bets, like it's still something <laughs> that I'd like to do. And maybe it's a, a function of us getting to know each other more, but I feel like I've been able to uh just express more of that humor side i think in lab and it's been a safe space to do that yeah i think the lab has has grown a lot i think each one of us of the graduate students has been able to figure out their own specialty um and their projects which i think by allowing us to do that you've enabled us to become more independent and critical thinkers in our own which has been really helpful when we've reviewed each other's projects or papers. Yeah, I think you've been really cognizant of each person's working style as well. Uh, I, I remember even before doing the, the PhD program, when I was doing my second year of AmeriCorps, my boss then was telling me like, you're doing a great job, you're doing all this different stuff, but you gotta let me know what you're doing instead of like completely <laughs> operating independently. <laughs> which I think I've gotten better at doing. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think you've also recognized, like, I will come to you probably with ideas and then operate on them and then maybe check in every once in a while and just be like, okay, this is how things are going, which I think has worked well for me. You know, that's my working style of being independent. And not everyone is going to be like that. And I think it's it's a really great thing that you've been able to recognize that and help each individual person um, work in their own working style for their, you know, for sake of the research and also for them themselves. It is kind of crazy to think that the, the time is almost over. It still hasn't hit me entirely that the time in lab will be fully wrapped up. Having these deadlines to be like, oh, I actually need to turn in the dissertation by this still seems like words versus like the emotional feeling of it. Yeah, but I think it's it's just been a great way to build my confidence in things that are not academic. And I think because you understand that people are not gonna be just their research, I've been able to blossom in that, in that kind of way. Like, I don't know how many PIs would be cool with one of the grad students running a business on the side and uh, trying to manage a crazy cycle of uh, podcast deadlines, uh, but also research deadlines, 
now combine that with job interviews and dissertations. Um, it's nuts, but, um, well, trust me when you, when you came to me with, with that, that you were going to be doing these podcasts, I definitely questioned, um, if you were truly going to be able to do this and, um, be as productive as I needed you to be in lab. But the only reason why this could happen is because you were right. And you are good at telling me what you're going to do, what you're doing. Right. And you always stayed on track and you, um, so that, I mean, I was very nervous to see how this was actually going to play out and it, you know, you're able to do both. You're still doing everything I asked you to do in lab. And so, and you're also doing great with the, with the podcast. So, um, you did both. It's, I don't think that many people could have done both. Were there other times too? Like I have, this as one of my written questions, um, that you felt like maybe Ben, like slow down, take it easy. I feel like I've probably come to you with tons of ideas in the past, but you need to make sure that people that are working with you are level headed about the endeavors they want to take on. Yeah, no, we've had, a, we've had a couple conversations to where, you know, you needed to slow down. You were working yourself, you know, uh, into the ground and, and it was affecting your emotional and mental state. I remember a couple of those times when you just need to take a little bit of time and it's slow it down. Um, but I think also too, is that you are so passionate about a few different things or a handful of different things. I think sometimes you get so excited about one thing, um, that I would sometimes try to dampen it and try to just have you be even, you know, you know, this is a great opportunity. Um, but slow it down and try not to get too high or too low. Um, just to benefit your mental, your mental state. I think there was a few times early in your career that you had ideas of moving and, and doing some other things. And we just had to take it slow and think about it a little bit more. And, and you did, and you came to the right conclusion, I think, but yeah, you're driving yourself pretty hard for a while. Yeah, I think so. Um, when you're in, in the, on the other side of that desk, like hearing that, like, you know, we had the conversation like, uh, you know, at some point, maybe grad school isn't the best thing for me um, and thought of like moving somewhere else. How did you navigate that? Because I would imagine some professors would be like, you're not doing that and just say you're not doing that or this is the exact thing that you need to do. Well, I think I told you just think about it, sleep on it, and let me know as soon as possible, right? Like what you think you want to do. And, and trust me, that conversation came up with some of the other students or one of the other students as well. Um, but if it's not for you, it's not for you. Who am I to say, no, you need to stay? Because that's only going to do two things. It's going to make you unhappy. Your productivity is going to go down in the lab. Then it's going to make me unhappy, right? And my productivity is probably going to go down because I'm thinking about that. And so you staying in a situation that you don't want to be in does no good to anybody. And so I might as well be as supportive as I can until you figure it out. And I had a feeling because of our other conversations that we had and some of your other things that you were interested in doing that you were going to probably rethink and, and come back to the table and we'd have another discussion. So I wasn't, I honestly wasn't too worried about it. 
So how does it feel now to have one of your graduate students almost done, your first one? It's great because it's really important for my promotion. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, no, it, it is. I'm, I'm not joking about that. That's, that's fantastic. But yeah, it's kind of, it's strange. Um, you know, it might have seemed long for you, <laughs> good or bad, I guess, maybe, maybe bad, but um, it flew by, absolutely flew by for me. And so it, it seems strange to think that you're going to be going off because honestly, I, I think I told uh, Jevin the other day, I said, well, in a perfect world, Jevin, Ben, and Katie would just stay in my lab and work for me until they're old and gray. Um, but I mean, I, I just think that's because you guys are, are so good at what you do in the lab. I don't want you to go anywhere, but I know obviously that's all par for the course. You got to go out and got to find your own path. And But it is weird. It doesn't seem like you should be leaving quite yet. Yeah. Any uh, final thoughts on this or any like lessons you feel like would be worth passing on to others from our interactions together? Any lessons? Oh, boy. Mm, what are you what are you trying to get at are you trying to pull something out of me i'm trying <laughs> no, to think I, I mean i <laughs> this was not a question that i had um i mean i'm trying to make sure i'm being mindful of time so i don't necessarily have anything i guess like the main the main takeaway from all of my questions and wanting to have you on here is like this is a really good example of how two people can benefit one another I think from a mentor-mentee perspective and because not every single relationship in academia is always this positive and helpful, I just, I really wanted to, to try to get to the essence of like why it works so well. Um, and I guess really just to also thanks, thank you for a great three and a half years I'm trying to hold back tears a little bit right now, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been a really wonderful experience, so thanks. I'm glad to hear that, and and I, it's really kind, and I appreciate you had that good experience. That was my intention the whole time. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, Ben, I, I don't have tears coming down, but I have tears, <laughs> it, they're, in, they're internal. Um, but you were fantastic in the lab, and I'm trying to, you know, the going back to why did it work so well? You know, I don't know. I think it's been working well with you three, you, Jevin and Katie. Um, I think it's, you know, I maybe I can answer it if I have a graduate student that comes in that it doesn't work so well, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I don't have, you know, this is my reference, right? You three are doing great um, from my perspective, and I hope that I'm meeting the needs of um, you as students, but, you know, I think it's, we have an open line of communication. If something is going wrong, we can talk about it. Um, and I also think just being respectful to one another in general is super important and kind of leaving egos and the, the power dynamic out of it. I think that that might be it. Right. You're very capable. You're very respectful. Um, 
And I'm here to, I'm always here to chat and, and try to make this lab better. And I know that was your goal as well um, throughout this time. And so I, I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why we all get along so well. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed having you in the lab so much. I never came into work on any day saying, oh, gosh, Ben and I are going to sit down and have a meeting and I don't know how it's going to go. Right. It, it, there's never anything like that. Right. So. Yeah, no, I, I'm just very appreciative, and I feel very fortunate and very lucky to have you in the lab because I know, like you said, that that doesn't happen a lot of times, right? And, and, and then, you know, days are long, projects don't get done, efficiencies reduced, and life inside and outside of this place gets rough. And so I'm very appreciative of you for not making it that way. So... It's been, a, it's been a good time, and maybe you'll stay, stick around a little bit longer than you expect, and I'm all right with it. Well, Adam, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, it's been a real joy having you on here and also throughout the program, and I'm, I'm glad we can kind of share our perspectives with hopefully some more graduate students out there and PIs too. Yes, likewise. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on, uh, and you, you probably need to get back to work, yeah? Yeah, you too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you later. All right, see you later. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I hope this was heartwarming and as reflective for you as it was for me. Thank you to Adam, and thank you, you, the listener, for listening. I didn't expect to create something like this podcast, and certainly never thought it would gain so much support from my friends, family, and community. Thank you to Jevin, Julia, and Lauren for helping get the podcast and the business off the ground. We are one year in, and whatever happens next, we will keep moving forward to humanize scientists, give voice to those who are sometimes voiceless, and push for a more just world. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush, marketing by Jevin Lortin, and editing by Julian Emperor. Also, get that dang free book on our Twitter. We are one year end.